Thank you, Rabbi Kesselman. A Shavua Tov, good Voch, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, depending on where you are in the world. Um, we wouldn't be able to start any share without our customary sound check. So I'm just going to make sure you can all hear me. It's clear and the, the line is clear. Thank you. And as usual, if you don't mind, I would like to dedicate our learning uh, to the people in Eretz Yisrael, but particularly the Chayalim, our soldiers, those who are out there uh, risking their lives. May the Torah that we learn, Magina, protect and shield them from all harm and return safely. May they return safely to their families in peace. The topic of today's discussion is what is the halachic methodology and what do you do really after covering the sources, the Shulchan Aruch, the commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch, where does the halacha really go from there? Now, in every major halachic work that comes out, after one has been treated to all of the halachas that one needs to learn, uh, whether it's an English halachic book or whether it's a more detailed Hebrew collection of halachas with footnotes, there is always the caveat at the end of the section saying, always ask a rov, or for this, for X, ask a rov, or as you've been told over and over again, ask your local rabbi, and maybe unnecessarily to say, but ask your local orthodox rabbi. But what is the the rov, the local orthodox rabbi, going to see and be able to explain and to conclude more than what the learner himself would be able to? So let me say what a, what, what a great question. And unfortunately, uh, there is no one simple answer because this question is tantamount to asking a neurosurgeon how it is that he conducts an operation and how it is that he can conduct microsurgery uh, in order for the neurosurgeon to provide an answer he would have to first take you through the entire textbook of uh, medical and anatomical and physiological problems and get into the, uh, the technicalities of how to perform a, a surgery of such nature. So in order to answer this, this question, I'll, I'll admit from the start, there is no one answer and there's no uh, clear answer. However, as Rabbi Kesselman put it, there is a framework. And if we understand the framework, then we can get a sense of how the halacha can be determined and how everyone can 
in some way paskin for themselves and when the matter needs to be taken to your quote-unquote local orthodox rabbi. If one has to take a look at the literature on how a rov is to rule in Hayalocha, one will find that the literature is as manifold, as, as vast as the Shulchan Aruch itself. Whether it's the Knesset HaGadoyla, Rabbi Chaim Ben Vist's Klalei HaHoyra, Klalei HaTalmud, or Klalei HaPoiskim, which is reams and reams of different rules of how to paskin, whether it's the Chidah and his Klalei HaPoiskim, whether it's the Chaya Adam and his Klalei HaPoiskim, whether it's the Stechemed, the Halochic Encyclopedia, with an entire section devoted to the Klalei HaPoiskim, whether it's the Prima Godim and his Hanhagas HaShoyal Vanishal, or whether it's the Shach in Hilchas Nadorim with his Hanhagas Isu Veheter, there, there is quite a, uh, a, a proliferation of different rules which have been worked out as to how to derive halacha from the Gomorrah, how it was that the Goinim derived the halacha from the Gomorrah, how it is then that the Rishonim derived the halacha from the Goinim and from the halacha, and then how it is that the Poiskim Achroinim derived the halacha from the Rishonim. So that is just one example of how a, a an entire tract of rules and patterns within the various poiskim have developed and how it's it's quite difficult to sift through all of that and really uh, get a sense of who in the hierarchy in the chain of halacha would work out to be the dominant forces. But there is literature on uh, on that. Instead of going through any of the literature, instead what we will do now is I will give some of the uh, principles that we find in the works of the early Poiskim, those principles upon which we base how to derive halacha from. And then after I go through them all individually, I'm going to go back and provide some sort of uh, gestalt that will tie all of these principles into one major principle. And hopefully from there, we will be able to get a sense of how we pass in halacha. The first principle that we're going to start with is from the Mahari Vale. The Mahari Vale was one of the early German achronim. He lived in Vale in Germany in the, uh, the 1400s. And the Mahari Vale writes in one of his responsa that the preferred method when weighing up how a scholar should approach paskening a halocha. Is it based on Bikias? Is it based on 
a thorough knowledge of all the different opinions and all of the different Gomorrahs and sugyas that deal with a particular topic, or is a, a scholar to use pupil? Is he to use insight, which is driven intellectually in order to uh, arrive at a halachic conclusion? And the Maori Vale's response to this question was that really it is a combination of both. One has to have erudition, one has to know the sources in the Gomorrah and in the Rishonim. One has to have a thorough knowledge of the information that is available, or to the best of one's ability, or in the times of the Mahari Vale, which was just prior to the printing press, as much texts as were available to the general public. And after a thorough scouring of the sources, the, the next would then be to use one's mind, to use one's own intellectual ability to learn through the various opinions, to try and clarify them, and to try and understand them to the best of one's ability to make sense out of these opinions. And then, after really grilling all of those opinions and seeing which of the Rishonim hold a particular view and what the bulk of those Rishonim would hold, then the scholar can paskin. Now, although the Mahari Vale spelt this out in a chuva, where we get the best sense of how Poiskin at that period in the early 1400s were learning is in the commentary of the base Yosef on the tour. If you want to see firsthand how the halachic methodology was used insofar as incorporating both erudition, a vast knowledge of the sources, and coupled with a critical analysis and a, uh, a grouping of those sources, your best bet, your, your, your best example would be the base Yosef. That is precisely what he does with his commentary on the tour. You will note that he will learn through the Gomorrah that deals with the topic. He will then quote all of the Rishonim, or a vast selection of Rishonim, and the Machloikas, the differences of how those Rishonim understood the Gomorrah, the base Yosef will then challenge. He will ask based on the Gomorrahs or based on reason, halachic reason, of course, based on reason, he will ask questions, he will be critical, and eventually the Beis Yosef will present which of those opinions in the Rishonim come out or seem to rise to the top. And then the Beis Yosef will hold like those Rishonim he will paskin, those are the that's the halocha, and then the Beis Yosef recorded his conclusions in his Shulchan Aruch. And so, if one wants to get a sense of how the halochic methodology begins, the best example is to look at the Beis Yosef and to use his style to be able to decide halocha. Now, the good news is 
that one doesn't have to get inventive because the Beis Yosef has done all the groundwork already. And so when one is looking into a sugya, when one wants to go through all of the opinions and one wants to see them in front, in front of one, it's all laid out, and one wants to see how to interpret those opinions, the Beis Yosef has already done the work for us. And so the first principle that emerges is that in order to decide a halacha, one needs a panoramic view of all of the major opinions in the Rishonim that deal with that halacha, and then one needs to see which Rishonim sort of float to the top. And that you can do by learning the base Yosef, by understanding the steps in the base Yosef and how he reaches his conclusion. That is our first principle. Our second principle is Shasad Chak and Hefzid Maruba. Shasad Chak means extenuating circumstances where someone is desperate and they would not be able to uh, accommodate the more strict opinion. And Hefzid Maruba means a serious financial loss that if we have to rule stringently, then someone is going to have to pay, someone is going to have to forfeit, and they may have to forfeit uh, food, a meal, or circumstances which they can never replace, either due to financial limitations or due to circumstantial limitations like Friday afternoon, if there's food for Shabbos or a Sudas mitzvah, food that has been prepared specifically for a large gathering and it is uh, too late for the caterer to replace all of the food. So situations like this, which are Shasad Chak and Hefzid Maruba, this is the second principle that we're going to speak about. For those who have already done part of Taruvas, I, I don't know where, where, where everyone is holding, but if you've seen enough of smicha in your Taruvas, in your Basabacholov, you have already seen the word Hefzid Maruba recurring over and over again. You will see that the Ramah is lenient in a case of Hefzid Maruba. He's prepared to rely, he's prepared to relax the halacha, where someone is going to have to suffer a loss, which is irretrievable. You've also seen, you may have seen the term hefzid mu'at as well, even if there's a slight loss of money, a slight inconvenience. You've also seen shasad chak, this phrase used as well. And so it's not new, but let's give a bit of an understanding as to what uh, how, let's say how, how we stretch the halacha when it's a case of necessity. In his introduction to his work, Torah's Chattas, the Ramah writes the following. He says that throughout his works, wherever he is lenient 
in a case of Hefzid Maruba, in cases of losses or extenuating circumstances, it is because there are more holds like that lenient opinion in the first place. So unlike our initial approach, where one would think that when there are cases of necessity, then we need to scrounge around looking for lenient opinions, looking for loopholes, looking for anything that we can rely on. The Ramos says that's actually to the counter because the lenient opinion that the Ramos holds like is the halokha. And that is the de facto position of the Ramos. It's just that where one can afford to, or one can be more stringent, or one can adopt more of a uh, an approach of, let's say, precious, of uh, uh, more a uh, disciplined and more sensitive approach to the halacha. If someone would rather not compromise their standards and they would rather suffer the loss, then they should. They should take the more stringent opinions into consideration. However, that is not expected. What is expected is to follow the halacha, and if the Ramah has determined that there are a selection of Rishonim, that there is a strong basis upon which to rely, in a case of Hefzid, it is because those opinions are really the halacha. The Ramah sees it was those Rishonim that actually came, came out as being the dominant Rishonim in his eyes as to who the halacha should follow. Now, it's not only the Ramah who holds this way, but we also find that the Taz and the Chok Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Reisha, who, by the way, it's his Yotzar tomorrow, Vov Tevis, the Chok Yaakov, and again in his work, Shvus Yaakov, Rabbi Yaakov Reisha also holds that wherever we find the Ramah or wherever we find uh opinions prior to the Ramah claiming that in cases of necessity one can rule leniently, it is because the lenient opinion is actually the dominant one. That is the halacha. And it is really one what should really uh, phrase it in such a way that in cases where it is not a necessity, then one should try and be more stringent. That is the uh, really the, a better way to frame it. So and so says the, the Oruch HaShulchan, up to about 100 years ago, the Oruch HaShulchan being one of the last of the great Poiskim HaChroinim. So principle number two was Shasat Chak, cases of necessity, where if the Ramah at least, or any of the commentaries in the Shulchan Oruch, have an opinion, then one can rely on that opinion in cases of necessity because that is the actual halacha. The lenient opinion is the halacha. It is really when the situation does not call or one can one can overcome a situation which is necessity or a loss, then one should try and overcome the situation and adopt a more stringent view. But that is up to the individual. That is not what the halacha calls for. 
So that is the, the second principle. The third principle, building on what we've seen so far, so so far, number one, the first principle of the Mari Vale was to have the opinions, as many opinions to examine and to work out which of those opinions comes out as the more dominant opinion. And that the Beis Yosef does for us. And we'll see soon that the the Shach and the Taz, the other commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch do the same as well. But that is the first principle. Second principle built on that, when you have all of the opinions, then if the Ramah at least says, or the Shach or the Taz at least say, that one can rely on opinions, the lenient opinions, in cases of necessity, it is because those lenient opinions are actually the halacha, that is the de facto position. Now let's move to the third principle, building on these, which is that how do we decide if the Ramah doesn't tell us openly that you can rely on something in cases of necessity, or the, the Shulchan Aruch doesn't tell us openly you can rely in cases of necessity, how then do we determine which opinions are good enough to rely on? So to answer this, we have uh, several opinions, several achroinim, but I'll just quote you the, uh, the Chidah, in his uh, Sefer Birke Yosef, also a as you can see, this this uh, this this topic is quite vast. So sometimes I even have to go looking looking a little bit. But what we also have. is the Pischei Tshuva in Yeridea, Simon Reishman base Sir Cotton Ches, which is the section of Halacha that deals with paskening or with Chachamim, uh, with Rabonim. So Simon Reishman base Sir Cotton Ches. The Pischei Tshuva there writes that now that we have the opinions of the Shach and Taz, the Magen Avraham and the Taz, who have provided reasons for the Halacha, and this is an important point, because once one has access to the explanations, not only of the source of the Halacha from the Gomorrah, but also the rationale, behind the halacha, that there is a principle that we're working with, then one has a clear opinion that one can rely on. And so after learning through the opinions of the Machaber, the Ramah, Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, the Shak, the Taz, or the Magen Avraham and the Taz, or in Evan Hoezer, the Beishmul, the Chilkas Machoikek, or in Choshen Mishpat, the Sma and the shach there again, after having all of these uh, uh, commentaries on the Shulchan Aruch uh, lay out the halacha and 
sort of tease out the details of what the reasons behind the halacha is, then one has a selection of opinions that one can now rely on. And if one of those opinions is uh, authoritative and disagrees with the other opinions, then one has what to rely on going back in cases of necessity. So the third principle is that on the page of the Mechaba, the Ramah, the Shach, and the Taz, unless they say something specific to exclude another opinion, like, for example, uh, for those that have learned Basa, Bacholov, and Taruvas, we know that the Ramah holds Hanan Bashari Surin. We know that when Issa food cooks with Heta food, the Heta food can become Hanan, it can become an Issa itself. And we know that the Shulchan Aruch, the Mechaber, doesn't hold like this. He holds that only milk and meat that cook together combine to form forbidden foods, a, an Isser, but not Shari Surim, not when forbidden foods cook with Heta foods. The taste does not affect the Heta food that much. So that would mean that the Shulchan Aruch is very lenient in this, in this regard, much more lenient than the Ramah. And we know that the Shach and the Taz both side with the Ramah and Ashkenazim are particular to say Hanan Bashari Surim, but Swardim will hold like the Machabra don't hold Hanan Bashari Surim, they're more lenient. So the Ramah and the Shach and the Taz have all spelled it out that Ashkenazim will not rely on the Machabra, will not rely on the, on the Shulchan Aruch under any circumstances. But that is a unique case where the Shach and the Taz and the Ramah have all articulated it clearly to the exclusion of the opinion of the Shulchan Aruch. In instances where this doesn't happen, which is 99.9% .9 of the halachas that we have, you may land up with a four-way dispute on the page of the Shulchan Aruch. However, in cases of necessity, one can rely on any one of those four opinions. So the third principle is that we can rely, yesh al-malismoich, we have what to rely on in cases of necessity in any of the lenient opinions on the page. However, going back to the second principle, if one can afford to be more stringent and one wants to adopt more of a uh, Spartan approach or a moralistic approach, and not compromise and rely on lenient opinions, then so be it that it is there within their realm. And if it's not a situation that calls for having to rely on a more or the most lenient opinion, then it is better to rule more strict, to hold like those opinions, even if there's one single opinion among the Mahabharamah Shaktas who is the stringent opinion. Now, before we conclude the third principle, I've just mentioned the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, the Shach, the Taz, and we, the reason these opinions have been singled out is because nearly all of the Achroinim, and I, I quoted this Pischei Tshuva, which does bring a series of Achroinim 
who, uh, who are uh, expressing these words, we find most of the Achronim deferring to the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, the Shach, and the Taz, purely on a, on a simplistic level, because all of these opinions have been able to explain their rationale and the basis of their conclusions, drawing from the Rishonim and from the, uh, the Gemara itself. So you have very you have four major pillars of halacha, and that is why I mentioned these four specifically. On a deeper level as well, the Pischei Tshuva also says that the Mechaber and the Ramah, the Shach and the Taz, all wrote their, their works in halacha with Ruach HaKodesh. They were divinely inspired. The Baal Shem Tov is also known to have said this, that Rebbe Rashab quoted from the name of the Baal Shem Tov, who also made this, uh, this, this observation that the Mechaber, Ramah, Shach and Taz all wrote their work with Ruach HaKodesh. So there is a gravitas to these four opinions, which is why I mentioned them specifically. However, we will not limit the third principle to the page of the Shulchan Aruch, because sometimes we do need to go looking. Sometimes we will find that the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, Magin Avram, the Shach, the Taz, may all unanimously be stringent, but the situation can sometimes be desperate. Like, for example, in a case of Agunas, when it comes to permitting a widow in limbo whose husband has disappeared, may have died, but cannot be determined to have died, and so an Aguna, a woman, will be left in limbo to suffer, never being able to remarry. And so in instances which are desperate to this degree, or in cases of Tarasa Mishpocha, when it comes to family purity, or just like the Hepsid Merubas and the Sudas Mitzvah, sometimes when it comes to a severe loss, then sometimes we need to go looking further beyond the page of the Shulchan Aruch, the Shach and the Taz. Sometimes we have to look above in the Rishonim or early Achronim, and sometimes we have to look below in the Achronim that came after the period of the Shulchan Aruch, Shach and Taz. So for example, um, you may have seen it, I'll try and use examples from Bosa Bechol of Usmicha, uh, if, you've, if you've covered these portions yet. In Siman Tzadik Aleph, Yoridea Siman Tzadik Aleph, Siv Hei, the Ramah writes that if you have meat, or trefer meat that was salted together with kosher meat, then if they were only put together after a certain amount of time that the meat stood in its salt, or they were put together and left to stand, then after a certain time period, the, the meat that was salted does not give off flavor anymore. And the shach finds that the source of the Ramah here is in the Trumas Adeshin. The Trumas Adeshin, who was the Rebbe of the Rebbe of the Ramah, dealt with a case 
of a bris miller. There was a meal of a bris miller, and many animals were shechted. The meat was all salted. They were all salted together. And then it was discovered that one of the animals was a trafer. And the Truma Sadeshan held that because the meat was all put together after Shir Malicha, after the meat stood in its salt for 18 minutes, that the meat is no longer salty, it's no longer giving off its flavor. The Truma Sadeshan was basing himself on the smug, one Rishon. And the smug is the only Rishon to hold this way. No one else held that salty meat spontaneously loses its ability to transfer flavor. Meat that is salted will continue to purge its flavor indefinitely, up to 24 hours and maybe even up to 48 hours. But the smug was the only opinion that held that after 18 minutes, after sheer malicha, let's say, the meat loses its saltiness and it, it gets, stops giving off flavor. And everyone was bothered by the Truma Sadeshan, they were bothered by the Ramor. But if you take a look, it is all based indeed on one Rishon, on the smug. But considering the case of the Truma Sadeshan, he was dealing with a case of a Sudas Mitzvah. It was a necessity. It was a, 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 a it would have been a calamity had all of those animals been shechted in vain because meat nowadays, if one had to have a, an entire wedding feast, God forbid, uh, discarded because of a, an incident like this. Think of those days in the times of the Truma Sadeshan where meat was a luxury that was maybe people only ate red meat maybe once a year on a yontif. So to have an entire uh, 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 Sudas mitzvah cancelled and have all that food go to waste would have been a, a calamity of epic proportion. And therefore, in cases of great necessity, the Ramah himself was prepared to rely on one single opinion in the Rishonim, the, the, the smug. So there's an example of how when a situation becomes that desperate, one can start looking for opinions in the Rishonim to rely on or even in the later Achronim um, but then one would need to do one's homework and one would have to and make sure that one understood the opinions well before relying on them, even if it's a single opinion. But that is really an extreme situation. As I mentioned earlier, we would usually adopt this exercise when it comes to our gunas, trying to allow a widow in limbo to remarry or in cases of Tarasa Mishpocha when it comes to uh, creating a home, a workable situation between husband and wife within the home, or in really uh, tragic circumstances, then we would go off the page and we would start looking for even a single opinion that we can rely on. So that is our third principle, that in cases of necessity, the bottom base halacha is really the lenient opinion. But if someone can afford to, or if someone can go beyond and ignore the necessity, then they should adopt a more stringent approach and they should still uh, opt, if they can, to be stringent.
Let's move on to the fourth principle. Not every case is mentioned in the Shulchan Aruch. Not every case is mentioned in the Gemara or the Rishonim. With technological advances and with the change in generational needs, sometimes novel questions present themselves that did not exist in the times of the Gemara or in the Shulchan Aruch. And there is no literature in the classical works to be able to derive any halacha from. And so it is up to the rov, it's up to the authority to now use the age-old method which is recorded in the Gemara of Ladamois Milsa Bamilsa, Lamilsa, to compare his situation with a situation or a halacha that does appear in some way which resembles his situation in the classical texts, in the original sources. Now, in order to extrapolate new areas of halacha from the Gomorrah, that takes somewhat of a more dedicated approach. So in order for a rov, for a poisek, to be able to confidently rule in a contemporary matter, they would have to learn through the Gomorrahs thoroughly, and they would have to make a very clear and cogent argument for their approach, which means that they would have to comb through the sources as much as they could, and they would have to basically wring out the sugya inside out before they could reach a conclusion. Now, an example of such, a, uh, such an approach was the approach of Rav Moshe Feinstein. If we look at the halochas in Igris Moshe, the way that Rav Moshe Feinstein presented the halocha was not like the classical way that we've learned or we learn when we learn Shulchan Aruch, where we look at the Rishonim and then we look at how the Machaber Ramah Shachtas come out. Rav Moshe Feinstein went to the source in the Gemara. He then learned through the Gemara, he learned through the Rishonim, and he made arguments, critical arguments that presents the principles that emerge from the Gemara and from the Rishonim. And then based on those principles, Ramosha Feinstein would then compare a contemporary or modern issue to what was there in the Gemara. We find a similar approach in the chuvas of Rabbi Akiva Eger. Rabbi Akiva Eger was also uh, someone who didn't go to the Shulchan Aruch. He rather looked at the issue from the sources, from the Gomorrah, the Rishonim. And he would also draw his conclusions through critical analysis of the Gomorrah. Now, just to give you an example, you heard a shir, uh, uh, Rabbi Kesselman gave a shir about Shabbos and electricity. I gave a shir as well last year, just before Hanukkah, on lighting the menorah using electrical uh, electric lamps. And this was an issue that really uh, only uh, emerged a hundred years ago, just over a hundred, just over a century ago. And the poiskim of the time had to compare electricity to a phenomenon that didn't exist in the times of the Gomorrah, but to a halocha 
that would definitely address the issue of electricity. And so they were in a position where they needed to uh, find the principle within the Gomorrah and using critical thinking, mercilessly critical thinking, prove the principle before extrapolating and applying the principle to electricity. Another area where uh, we need to you adopt this type of uh, halachic approach is medical ethics. Modern medical ethics um, was not is not really an area that appears in the Shulchan Aruch. In some areas it does, when it comes to Shabbos and what overrides Shabbos or fasting or Yom Kippur. But when it comes to the more subtle areas of halachic, halacha and medical ethics, it is really the system of analysis and of extrapolation, similar to the methodology of Ramosha Feinstein, that enables us to derive principles to apply them. Now, understandably, this fourth principle of how to paskin halacha is not something which every rov is able to do. In fact, we've only found uh, select individuals who have the level of erudition and critical thinking necessary to uh, extrapolate new halachas. And so while one can use the old system of actual, uh, like the Mahari Vale said, clear erudition, getting all your opinions, and then analyzing them, and sometimes one can be one's own base Yosef, Nonetheless, one, can, one understands this is a skill and this is a, a very, uh, very much a gray area where it is up to the knowledge, level of scholarship and level of clear and level of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of critical analysis that the Rov is comfortable with to be able to decide on matters of which are usually life and death, or usually novel matters, which do not have a basis in prior halachic works. Okay, so just to recap what we've seen so far, there are four principles that we have come across, which form the basis for paskening halacha. The first principle is doing one's homework, finding out what all the opinions are and why any of those opinions or group of opinions should be considered as the halacha. <coughs> the second principle is, <coughs> excuse me, the second principle is shasat chak in cases of necessity who can one rely on the third principle was shachantaz that relying on one of those four opinions 
or in cases of desperation, one can even look to a single opinion in the Rishonim and the Achronim as well. And then the fourth principle was comparing contemporary issues with ancient issues, ancient halachas, and trying to make an accurate comparison. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot more that, that we can discuss. Um, there's an individual paskening for himself or coming out with a leniency for the community if a community will abuse that leniency or if that leniency will snowball into something which would be an, a, an illegal leniency. Um, just to provide some sort of framework as to how we, we paskin halacha and to put all of these four principles into one total picture, let's begin with an analogy. There was an experiment done, was either in the, in the 70s or the 80s, where a kindergarten decided that they did not want to enclose the children on the playground. They felt that the walls around the playground were inhibiting. And so the kindergarten tore down the walls surrounding the school and hoping that the world around the children would now be available to them and that they could play freely and not feel inhibited by the walls of the, the compound of the kindergarten. And they noticed on the first day that when the children were allowed out of the, uh, the school for recess, that the children did not want to go onto the playground. They all remained inside the classrooms. And as the teachers tried to push the children out of the classrooms, those children that those of the children that did venture out the classrooms huddled together close by to the classroom door. The children were petrified. They were too afraid to actually walk onto the playground. And the reason, which to us would be obvious, but they had to learn it back then, was that the walls of the kindergarten were the children's security. They felt that if they could play all the way up to the wall, that they wouldn't be affected by the streets, by the dangers, by the vicissitudes of what lurked on the other side of the wall. But once the walls were taken down and the children were exposed to all of the vagaries of the streets and of life outside of the playground, it was unsettling, it was unnerving to the children. They did not want to go venture out into an area that was no longer secure. And if you think about it, uh, for those who would commute or drive daily over the George Washington Bridge or any of the other bridges, if any of the guardrails on those bridges were down, how uneasy one would feel driving over those over that, uh, that, that height. So the guardrails are there in order to provide a sense of security 
as to where one can work within the the, uh, the guardrails. And so using this analogy, we can explain the halachic methodology as follows. The exercise of learning halacha is to first of all become familiar with what is permitted and what is forbidden, what is obligatory, what is not obligatory, what is impure and what is pure. But after becoming familiar with the halacha, the next step is to now work out where the walls, where the perimeters actually lie and how far one can play within those perimeters. And that is the second task. That is the job and the prerogative of the rov, of the poisek, not only to know the halachas, but to be able to find out where the perimeters are, how far one can stretch the halacha to the point that one is no longer in and within the guidelines of halacha, but one, God forbid, goes out and one now is outside of the playground, so to speak, and in the street. So that is our task. And in determining where the guardrails are, where the perimeters are, we have to go through these four principles. Number one, erudition and analysis. Like the Maori Vale says, we've got to find out all the opinions on this matter. And we've got to find out which opinions uh, are the, the closest to the Gomorrah and how many of those opinions there are, not just as a, an exercise to count how many are, are on our side, but just to see the gravitas of the halacha, how many lenient opinions are there, and determine where exactly the perimeter fencing is. The second is to now determine when one can, so to speak, play all the way up to the walls. One can go to the limits of the leniencies of halacha, which is cases of necessity and sometimes grave necessity, where one can even find a single opinion which forms the edge of the playground, so to speak, the edge of the halachic uh, expanse. And then if one doesn't find opinions that deal in the ancient texts, then it is up to the poisek to try and find where the perimeters are himself by going through the Gomorrahs and by creating a sugya through the Rishonim, which takes great effort and great dedication and great enterprise to be able to construct a, an, a, uh, a perimeter wall of one's own and then going back to the first three principles of who and what and what the circumstances are that one can be lenient or one needs to be stringent. And that is the, the basic answer in short as to what the halachic methodology is and what a rov is expected to do when paskening, that once we move off the page of the Shulchan Aruch, Shach and the Taz, then we enter into unknown areas. We enter into uh, sometimes a limitless and endless sea, the Yam HaTalmud and the Sea of Halacha. And in order to 
fix the halacha, have some sort of guidelines as to how to paskin, it is up to the rov to be able to then go through all of these steps that I've mentioned and look for the perimeter walls where the halacha has defined and where the area that one could work within and then decide together with the petitioner who's asking the shaila how the halacha is going to emerge for them or for a community and what the long-term effects are going to be after the rov is paskind if something is going to take on a halach is going to take on a permanent fixture. Now, in our discussion, we haven't looked at custom at Minag. That can also play a role. We haven't looked at Kabbalah. We haven't looked at the esoteric dimension behind the halacha, which can also play a role. We haven't looked at the certain opinions that are the bedrock for certain communities which are unwavering. So, for example, the Mechaber, the Shulchan Aruch, is the final opinion for Svardim. They would not question unless there was some need for an, an interpretation within the Mechaber, and we find amongst the Svardi Poiskim that there is sometimes a, uh, a, a discrepancy and a dispute, but the Mechaber, Maran, Maran Beis Yosef, Shulchan Aruch, by the Sfardim is always an opinion that they will hold by, irrespective of whether the Mechaber is lenient or stringent. When it comes to Chabad or other Hasidic communities who would hold like the Alter Rebbe, in all cases, that is also a pillar that we are committed to. When it comes to other communities, certain communities hold like the Vilna Gon, like the Gra the Minag of, of the Minhage Hagon, and for them, they have taken on that no other opinion is going to be able to sway the halacha if the Vilna Gon holds a certain way. There are other communities, more contemporary communities, who have adopted the approach of the Chazonish and would not hold like any other opinion. But where community preference is not possible, or community preference is going to be limiting and going to be more restrictive and becoming uh, impractical for certain people, then we would resort to the halachic methodology, as I pointed out today, with the guidelines being set, finding where the perimeter fencing is, where the end most lenient wall is, and then working within that uh, that area working within that framework as to who we're dealing with and what the long-term effects are going to be. And that would be the prerogative of the Rov. So in conclusion, what is the halachic methodology? It is complex. What is the aim of the halachic methodology for the Rov, for the seasoned halachist? It is to gauge where the perimeter walls are. And who is fit to do so, that is not a, uh, for us to, to judge or to say. However, there is one criterion, really one condition that is necessary for the Rov to Paskin, and that is intellectual honesty. To know 
that they have learned through the sugyas properly. And it is always a point of humility to get a second opinion, to discuss the matter with a colleague, or to go looking for proofs and backup. But if one is honest enough, and one is sincere, and one wants the truth, one wants to do the rotsan of the Abishta, if one is merely looking to do the will of Hashem, then that is the number one characteristic, really the first criterion, highest criterion in the halachic methodology. The rest really all flows from there. I hope we were able to uh, to clarify this 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 uh, this issue today, and I hope that it may have inspired some of you to dedicate time in the future to be able to go through the sugyas to make a meal out of it, to make a uh, vocation out of it, if need be. The greater for Klal Yisrael, the greater for the Torah, for the development of the Torah itself. Thank you for your attendance this morning, and I hope to see you next month for more Torah, for more growth, and may we all be blessed to hear good news, good news from Israel, and continued success in our quest in the most profound and deep pursuit that man can aspire to in this world, the learning of Torah. Thank you. Shavua Tov, a good voch and a good Chodesh, good month to everyone.